Welcome back to Bitcoin for Advisors. I'm with my assistant, Pierre Rochard. I'm Morgan Rochard. And uh, yeah, we're sorry we took such a long hiatus. Um, we were actually very sick <laughs> um, and coughing, and I don't think anyone would have wanted to hear us doing that over the air. So, But we're back, and we're sounding pretty good now. Yes. Um, thankfully, we are healthy now. And um, it's not so much the coughing. I think that would have been a problem for me. It's the congestion. Oh, yeah, the uh, lack of being able to breathe while on the air. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we definitely want to bring our audience high-quality audio content that doesn't kill us. Yeah, that, that our audience knows and loves. Yes. <laughs> um, but, yeah, not much happened anyway, so. That's true, yeah. <laughs> it had, not a whole lot has changed since our last episode, so we didn't really feel like anyone was missing a whole lot. Now, our, our, our previous one was about scams, um, and then the one before that, I think, was about the uh, price uh, mm-hmm. crashing. Yeah. And the price has basically been sideways. Um, some have accused Bitcoin of becoming a stable coin at this point, mm. uh, which it's not actually the first time. If you look throughout Bitcoin's history, there are periods of just sideways price like this. Yeah. And to me, that's when you're not really getting any net new adoption is that the price just goes sideways. Yeah, that makes sense. And it goes back to the argument people have about, oh, you know, Bitcoin's too volatile. And then Bitcoiners say, well, you know, when Bitcoin has full adoption, then it won't be so volatile anymore. Um, And I think that you get glimpses of that during periods like this where, yeah, if you don't have any new adoption, then Bitcoin just goes sideways and it's it's a stable, uh, you know, value. But what about the volatility? Well, the volatility then only happens if people decide to abandon Bitcoin or uh, that you have a wave of new adopters and a wave of new adopters can only happen, you know, if aliens show up if all humans are using Bitcoin. Yeah, that's fair. Well, I think it makes a little bit of sense why we're trading sideways, given the economic backdrop that we're currently in. Yeah, absolutely. I think people um, are uh, hunkering down uh, because interest rates, I saw the mortgage rate hit a new 22-year all-time high. 22 years. Yeah, 7%. So I guess it was in 2000 that it was 7%. Yeah, I thought it was like 7.15 or something like that. Yeah. So significantly different than if you had bought a home two, three years ago, what you're paying now, even if you buy a home for the same price or less, really, because home prices are starting to come down. Yeah. And to me, it's bizarre because they're looking at consumer price inflation and that's what they're targeting, right? Is to try to lower consumer price inflation. Mm-hmm. And then they, the tool that they're using to lower consumer price inflation is interest rates. But how many people borrow money to purchase consumer goods in the supermarket, right? Like, I don't think that's. I hope common. it's significantly less than the amount of people who yeah. <laughs> use I, it, that to go buy mortgages. Yeah. And, and who's like, oh, Interest rates are higher now, and so I have to lower my consumption of consumer goods at the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that 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 you know th- that that's like a plausible direct causal mechanism. So what they're doing is that they are raising interest rates, which means that it's more expensive for 
people to get mortgages, mm-hmm. right? So they're they're basically trying to crash the real estate market so that people have less money to spend on consumer goods. Yeah, but they're also, I mean, it, it's increasing people. I mean, basically, people's largest expense for the most part is where they live, if you look at the average budget. So if you increase the cost for people to um, live in their home, it actually is an increase in inflation if you were to look at it from an interest rate perspective. Right. Not a decrease in inflation. So even if they crash the real estate market, they actually have to crash the real estate market pretty far from where it is even now to get below where people were prior so basically, they're saying uh, that they're going to raise the price of your real estate, your, well, your debt payments, mm-hmm. so that then you don't have enough money to spend on consumer goods. Yep. And that'll lower the price of consumer goods, which is what they're going for. But if they actually included both prices in their index mm-hmm. of the cost of interest and the cost of consumer goods then it would be a net zero effect. It would just be taking from, you know, one side to the other. Yeah, for sure. I definitely feel affected by the uh, the consumer price thing, though, because I was in the supermarket and I wanted to buy cards for our nieces for Halloween. And normally I don't really think that's such a big deal. You know, you spend 2 $3 on a card and you mail it out and it's no big deal. They wanted $10.50 per card. Wow. And so I, I actually texted my sister and said, I'm sorry, but I'm not sending cards to, to your daughters this year because that's just crazy. They're going to yeah. throw that in the trash two days after Halloween. Yeah, that yeah. is crazy. Wow. $21 for two cards. They, they must have been embroidered with gold and have diamond studs in them. <laughs> no, they were like normal, normal cards and, you know, in Whole Foods. Maybe it's a Whole Foods markup, but yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that might be part of the problem. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's, that's the other thing is that inflation, it's, it, you know, it, it does directly solve itself in the sense that you're going to spend less uh, because of inflation. Mm-hmm. And presumably the feedback loop there would be the, you know, you you stop bidding up consumer prices and then consumer prices should just go sideways afterwards but um yeah i think though that the 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 missing ingredient here is government spending right yes, which is definitely that yeah if you whether it's ppp loans forgiveness which was bad mm-hmm. i think i mean our audience is free to disagree uh and then student loan forgiveness which i think was equally bad but then it, it didn't fully go through, though, if, if I recall correctly. I think that they're still debating whether or not they're going to actually approve them. Okay. Yeah. Well, that the, the that just makes it worse, honestly. Yeah. Like, I I think that the the least harmful way of doing inflation is literally to just give a bunch of people cash, right? Just like credit their bank account. They did that, though. They absolutely did that. Yeah. And. The reason why I think that's less worse than PPP or student loan forgiveness is you don't have all the paperwork, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the waiting and the the wondering, the accounting, yeah, yeah, the dealing with lawyers if you need to. Yep. Yeah. All the extra people who get paid. It's the same thing with that. um, It was like the employee retention credit that they gave out during COVID. There are people now who are accountants who really studied that rule who are charging thousands and thousands of dollars for people to get their money back for from the ERC credits. And it's just like, 
what kind of world are we living in where that's how we stimulate the economy by giving a boon to employ like to accountants and lawyers? Yeah. So it ends up just being welfare for um, the the middlemen. Um, and uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, we're, <laughs> they're, they're raising interest rates uh, because a bunch of uh, PPP folks uh, scammed the government. Yeah, pretty much. Well, I think it also, it's a testament to how the government operates in general, right? They think that they can, you know, wield the power stick and they know best and there, there aren't going to be repercussions to their decisions or they don't think of the repercussions necessarily to their decisions. They're only thinking about how to specifically aid people in the moment, um, really for their own best interests, right? And so we end up in these situations over and over and over again, because governments constantly make decisions based on like, you know, the, the air. Um. (laughs) Well, and even if they do know that there's going to be negative side effects to their policies, they also know that they can scapegoat. Mm -hmm. So they can say, Oh, actually, it's the greedy corporations raising their prices on you. Um, I haven't yet heard uh, somebody say, actually, the reason mortgage rates are going up is the greedy banks are mm. uh, raising their rates. <laughs> um, for some reason, the banks get a free pass on on that. Yeah, you know, I'm sure we'll get there eventually, though, because I mean, prior to 2008, there was a lot of angst about the banks and how they were lending and so forth. So yeah. I think we're probably headed there. But yeah, it doesn't seem like the government. I mean, it feels like the government is only blamed by the side who is not in office. Right. So right now, right, Republicans are blaming Democrats. And then if a Republican were to be elected, it would be the opposite. And it was that way when... um Trump was in office where the Democrats were constantly blaming the Republicans. So I can't imagine anything's going to change in the future just because it's so easy to blame the other side um, because both sides are always doing something that you can blame them for. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the Trump tax cut was uh, senseless. Um, but anyway, uh, let's not get too deep into uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the politics. Um, so we don't lose all five of our listeners. Yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, putting aside inflation, um, which seems to be continuing unabated. Um, so, I mean, a real estate to me should be, uh, going down and yet it doesn't seem to really be going down. Like the prices seem to be sticky and it makes me think of the coyote, you know, in Looney Tunes when he runs off the cliff. Mm -hmm. He's like like there for a little bit before he starts going down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because just mechanically, if interest rates go up, you can afford a less lower sticker price. Mm -hmm. Um, and then on the other side of the market, uh, if nobody's buying your house, you have to lower the sticker price, uh, which obviously will lead to the same problems that we saw in 08 of people being underwater and then Mm -hmm. banks, uh, you know, having bad loans and then, uh, the, the whole system needing to be bailed out all over again. Yeah, but they're not in a situation where they can lower interest rates uh, or and print more money as means of getting out of the situation. So it's a very different well the, backdrop this time than it was, you know, yeah, absolutely. fifteen years ago. Um, the the only thing that would make sense for um, lowering inflation without kind of uh, blowing up the financial system is you either raise taxes or you lower government spending. And or both or both simultaneously. 
but that is just so outside of the realm of possibility um, where like Republicans won't let you raise taxes Democrats won't let you cut spending. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they don't have an effective way of using fiscal policy to fight inflation. Yeah. So I imagine inflation continues. Well, yeah, inflation continues. And then you have the Fed like pressing a button that isn't really connected to inflation, uh, where they're just going to continue to raise interest rates. Um, And the interesting thing about monetary policy is that it takes about 12 to 18 months for between you implementing the policy and then the policy having an effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a lag that has been known for, for decades. I mean, this is something that, you know, um, Ben Bernanke wrote about, uh, Milton Friedman wrote about, like everybody knows about it. And yet in practice, they don't think about it that way. They expect instant results and so they're always fighting the previous battle. And so right now they're they're fighting the inflation that was created 12 to 18 months ago, mm-hmm. you know, uh, during the COVID, uh, you know, uh, crazy spending spree. Um, and now they are going to create a problem in 12 to 18 months of another financial crisis. And then they're going to be responding to, to that. Um, they're, they'll always just be 12 to 18 months behind. Patience is very hard. For everybody, including governments. Well, yeah, they're under tremendous political pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, polling shows that the number one concern for voters is inflation. Um, and so everyone's like, oh, and, and and politicians see using the Fed's independence as a way of having their cake and eating it too, of, mm-hmm. okay, the Fed's going to fix inflation for us, and we're not going to get blamed for the negative consequences of the Fed raising interest rates. Yeah, yeah, because they're independent, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely why Biden is taking all the strategic oil reserves and dumping them on the market right now yeah. in, ahead of the election. Right before the election. And, yeah. and he also, he asked Saudi Arabia, hey, can you not cut production until after the election? Which is like, okay, I he you know, it's a very political thing. It's not a... A good policy thing. Yeah. Um, he could reopen um, the federal fields that he closed here. Uh, yes. He could also uh, reopen the Keystone Pipeline. Mm-hmm. And um, he, it, we could also time travel back to 2020 when oil prices, remember, were negative. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And Trump said, hey, let's fill up the strategic oil reserve. Let's fill up our gas tank with cheap oil. And the Democrats said, no, that's a bailout for the oil industry. And we are actually going off of fossil fuels because of carbon emissions. Oh, right. Yeah, we're off of fossil fuels now, aren't we? So we're not going to take this free oil and fill up our gas tank. I mean, the government has a problem with that in general, right? Interest rates are at all time, all time, all time lows. And what are they issuing? The shortest term paper that they possibly can instead of issuing 30 year debt. I mean, it's unreal to me why you would do that. Like, we're out here taking the longest possible mortgage that we can at the lowest rate. Why aren't they doing that? You know, it's like, are they just who is financial planning the government? It's 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 mind boggling. Yeah. Uh, well, they're the, 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 the people who are financially planning the government have a two to four year horizon. Yeah. <laughs> and also, <laughs> even if they had a longer time horizon, it's not like they uh, have a crystal ball and mm-hmm. that they, you know, 
well, except for Nancy Pelosi, it's, it's not like they're great <laughs> traders, yeah. you know, who <laughs> would beat the market. Um, if they were, they probably wouldn't be working in the government. They'd yeah, probably be running yeah. A hedge fund. Um, and so they, and, and and on top of that, they're just trying to minimize the short-term interest expense. And so the way you do that is by borrowing, you know, using six-month mm-hmm. uh, yeah. paper, uh, three-month paper, one month. Overnight. Overnight, yeah. <laughs> um, you get paid to do the overnight. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and now interest rates are going up, and so their interest expense is ballooning as, you know, it rolls. Yeah, well, they ha- now have the same problem as all of us consumers out there. Y- yes. So it's it's quite quite a storm uh, brewing out there. Mm-hmm. So that's why, I, I mean, I, th- I find it amazing that Bitcoin's going sideways. Uh, through this. Yeah, so maybe it's a testament to the fact that Bitcoin is what we all think it might be in the future. Well, that and I think that the leverage got wiped out very early. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, you'll hear people say Bitcoin is the last free market. And so that's why Bitcoin's price prices things in sooner than everything else, um, which I find to be amusing. I don't know how true that is. <laughs> Um, I feel like there's still a ways to go, though, because there's still a lot of altcoins out there that have um, quite a bit of worth that should not have as much worth as they do. So maybe we're headed for a, I don't know if that means Bitcoin's headed for a second leg down, but I, it does not feel like the bear market for altcoins is over. Um, that That's true. Um yeah, I, I I don't know. I I don't know. I, I have a hard time relating to the psychology of the altcoin trader. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> true of me too. They they might be down enough where like they're they're not selling, they're writing this down to zero. So, yeah, yeah. Which means that if they're all doing that, then uh yeah, it doesn't go down. That's true, yeah. There's no no supply on the market. No. Yeah. Um I, I think that what what causes altcoins to go down is um so a new altcoin comes out, mm-hmm. and so people leave the old altcoin. Ah, uh, yes. To jump onto the new one, mm-hmm. and then so on and so forth ad infinitum. Yeah. And so there's always, you know, the next big thing that they hop onto, and that they hop off of the previous next big thing. And so as long as um, now, I think though that you have to, in order to get the next big thing. Uh, going, you, you've got to be in a bull market. Mm, yeah, that's a good point, actually. Rotation going. So some of these, maybe their leg down will actually be in the future during the next bull market rather than during this bear market. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that and makes in, sense. In sats terms. I mean, in dollars. <laughs> yeah, who knows? I mean, I don't know anymore in dollars, honestly. I really don't. Um, now, I found it interesting. We, I think we believe, I believe we talked about Terra and Luna, the algorithmic stablecoin that collapsed. I believe we did, yeah. Uh, and um, now people are comparing the Japanese yen to this because... Oh, are they? Yes. Uh, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, because whereas... Uh, yeah, so they they are selling dollars um, and tr- trying to um, manipulate the price of the yen because they're, the yen's in, in trouble. But I don't know. I'd have to look into deeper into it because... Um, I don't know that the yen is an algorithmic stable coin. <laughs> but yeah. they are, I think they are trying the same kind of uh, financial alchemy of... I uh, see. Yeah. Artificially uh, stabilizing something and yeah. trying to fight the market. 
Whatever happened with like, I know this was a very long time ago, but it was when they pegged the, um, was it the Swedish Krona to the Euro during the 2008 crisis because the Swedish Krona was getting so mm. o- like overvalued because people kept thinking of it as a safe haven that they were like having issues in Sweden or not Sweden. Sorry. It wasn't, it was Switzerland. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So, and yeah, it wasn't yeah. the Krona at all. Yeah. Like, it was so in Switzerland. Swiss, it was they, a Swiss. They own like a bunch of stocks. Mm hmm. Oh, okay. A bunch of like Apple stock and stuff. Do they? Yeah. Because they were just like printing lots of Swiss francs to just buy. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I guess that's what happened. Yeah. Although now I have this vague recent memory of somebody saying that trade is about to reverse and have to (laughs) uh, sell all their stocks and whatnot. Anyways. Uh, Anyways. Did you want to talk about what's going on with the uh, Ripple? Yeah, so um, there was an interesting tweet from Ripple's general counsel. And, um, you know, I personally, you know, full disclosure, this is my opinion, not investment advice. I think Ripple is an absolute clown show, right? I think that they are (laughs) a dumpster fire. And frankly, uh, the amount of dishonesty and nonsense that I've heard them spout about Bitcoin uh, is is enough to take up you know several hours of podcast. Having said that, their general counsel, I mean he's he's probably getting paid the big bucks. Uh, you know he's their general counsel in Ripple like, or in, in <laughs> yeah. hopefully he's getting paid in dollars. I don't yeah, know. I don't know. Um, and he's a, he's a serious person. He he has you know uh, a, a legitimate background in uh, regulatory affairs and uh, and the law. And, um, you know, they, they, Ripple hired him for a reason, which is that um, the SEC is trying to make an example out of XRP being a security and Ripple being the issuer of that security. Mm-hmm. And so if that were the case, then XRP is an unregistered security and there's lots of possible civil and criminal liability. Um, and this their general counsel came out with a tweet uh, this week that said that he's got he's got receipts he's got emails <laughs> uh, and basically uh, so there th- ripple is in litigation with the SEC and R- ripple is their their line of defense is interesting they're saying that hey look the SEC said that Bitcoin and um, ethereum are not securities. Okay, how did the SEC say that? One SEC commissioner had a speech. His name is Hinman. He had a speech years ago. Like, I think it was like 2016 or something. Okay. Um, where he said that, uh, rip, or sorry, that uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum are not securities and that, you know, a lot of these other tokens are securities. And Ripple's point is that Sure, Bitcoin. Everyone agrees Bitcoin's not a security. Mm-hmm. But Ethereum, Ethereum had a, a pre-sale. Yeah. And Ethereum was issued by, you know, the Ethereum Foundation or whatever legal entity was based out of Switzerland or whatever. And Ethereum has the same fact patterns as Ripple and XRP. Uh Arguably worse fact patterns. <laughs> um, and so if 
the SEC is declaring that Ethereum is not a security, why is the SEC also not declaring that XRP is not a security? Or, or vice versa, right? Yeah. Of, uh, you know, this would be uh, Ripple throwing Ethereum under the bus <laughs> or dragging them under the bus with them yeah. of saying, hey, look, you have to defend yourselves too now. Um, and so the SEC's position was that, hey, much like this podcast, uh, that speech was just that person's opinion, uh, not, <laughs> um, not the opinion of that person's employer, uh, which is the SEC. And so, um, you know, it's not binding on the SEC. It's not official policy or regulatory guidance or anything. And uh, that we can litigate against XRP without having to litigate against Ethereum or having to defend Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Um, and XR- or Ripple's position was that, well, what do you mean that's not the SEC's position? He's an SEC commissioner. He's speaking in his official capacity as SEC commissioner. And surely he must have consulted internal SEC uh, legal and regulatory and et et cetera uh, compliance, uh, you know, before this speech. And this was not an impromptu speech. It was a written speech that, you know, he he read out. And so uh, presumably it had been reviewed internally by... Uh, the SEC, and and thus it's the SEC's position, mm-hmm. or, um, uh, it, or, or at least something that that would mark out what the SEC's position would be. Yeah, in theory, um, and the SEC was like, no, 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 <laughs> and finally the judge was like, all right, well, hey, look, we're gonna subpoena the SEC, and now it's like this this legal case, which. Was the SEC trying to prosecute uh, Ripple is turning into Ripple prosecuting the SEC. <laughs> and this judge is like, okay, you've got to produce emails about this speech. And the emails were produced, but they, they're, they're still sealed. And so we can't see them. But Ripple's ge- general counsel saw them. And Ripple's general counsel took to Twitter and said, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> We're in good shape here. Can't say exactly what's going on, but this is looking good. Um, and I think that the the original sin, if I can use that phrase, mm-hmm. of the SEC uh, was that they, they 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 got lobbied to put Ethereum into this same yes. category of Bitcoin mm-hmm. as a commodity, and they should they should not have done that. They they should have figured out a better solution than that, but um, you know that's something that happens when you have a uh, government agency that can be lobbied. Yeah, I would also say. I mean, it does speak to the incompetence of the SEC on this issue and pretty much every other issue. And we we're not advocating here that everything become you know regulated under the SEC. But I, I would advocate yeah. the opposite. Mm-hmm. I, I would say, hey, look, like. This clearly the SEC is not in a position to decide what is a security or not, because what's going on here is that not only is there a new technology, which. okay, okay, uh, we're rolling our eyes. I guess we're on podcast format. So, yeah, Uh, it's also that um, they're basically trying to say that privately issued centralized currencies, 
are securities that have to have the same follow the same disclosure rules as centrally issued equities mm-hmm. and liabilities. Um, and I think that really the SEC is actually going outside of its statutory authority and that um, when that when the SEC was created, I don't think that um, the, the the legislators had in mind that there would be um, privately issued currencies in the future that, that would have value. Um, and arguably, like the, the regulator for that would be a, a different regulator, whether it's the office of the currency controller. <laughs> um, but even then, like the 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 the. They had it in mind that, hey, look, people are going to use dollars because dollars are backed by gold. Mm-hmm. There's no way nobody, anyone's going to use Ethereum <laughs> um, because, you know, it's not backed by anything. So yeah. um, I think that the, it's just somewhere that's unlegislated. And in the U.S., when you have something that's unlegislated, um, you, you just follow the common law, right? And so you can't commit fraud, right? That's just like common law fraud. Like, you, there's... A, it's still regulated. It's just regulated by the common law, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, if but if you want to have a statutory regulatory regime around it, well, you're going to have to pass a new law. Yeah. Uh, to do that, um, which now been we segues to into yeah. Sam Sam Bankman Fried. Yeah. <laughs> who uh, apparently he was lobbying for this uh, a new legislative proposal. Um, uh, and th- th- now, uh, he's saying, yeah, the, the regulatory authority for both, well, specifically for decentralized currencies, i.e. commodities is the CFTC. Okay. And that not only is the CFTC, which as their name implies, commodity futures trading commission, mm-hmm. you would say, okay, well. They regulate commodity futures, i.e. Bitcoin futures. Sure, that's reasonable. Yeah. Um, Apparently, Sam is lobbying for them to regulate the spot market as well. Why? Because he's a government agent. Well, (laughs) I think because that would benefit his business uh, because he thinks that he can capture the CFTC from a regulatory perspective. Mm Mm-hmm. And control it, yeah, to favor his business interests. Um, and so, first of all, they need to change their name now to the Commodity Spot and Futures Trading. Yes, Commission. yeah, that would be a big change. The CSFTC. <laughs> so, good luck with that. Um, and um, yeah, there's not really. I I, I think that okay. I, I have lots of opinions on. Um, no way. Uh, on spot trading, <laughs> Bitcoin spot trading venues, sp- specifically with them co-listing other tokens that have completely different properties than Bitcoin mm-hmm. and then putting all these ticker symbols into one interface and then throwing retail users into it. But th- th- my issues with that are, are basically from a product management perspective, right? Of uh, That's not the optimal way of building the funnel for... Um, you know, it, it maximizing the, the, the value of the, the business. Um, and this bill and uh, the regulators and SBF, they basically want 
to uh, put product management into the CFTC and um, into uh, legislators, legislative hands. Mm-hmm. And I find that to be absurd because even private companies struggle with product management. Yeah. It's extremely difficult and they have been struggling with it. Now, they also should get credit for having done things that are really interesting and innovative that have benefited uh, users, which is, for example, that you can spot trade Bitcoin using a, a REST API and that you have access to the price feed for free, mm-hmm. often without even signing up for that trading venue. Um, and you don't get that in equities markets. No, definitely not. You got to pay a lot. A lot of money. Um, both for direct market access and also for data access. Yep. And so I think that um, the unregulated, quote unquote, because they are regulated by common law, right? And then they're also regulated by uh, money transmitter licensing, Mm -hmm. state by state and FinCEN money, et cetera. But anyway, they're not regulated by the CFTC, the spot markets. And... Um, I think that that has led to a lot of innovation and democratization of access to spot trading uh, for Bitcoin. Um, And I think that's to the benefit of Bitcoin's liquidity. uh, And um, it would be bad uh, to then say, hey, look, now all of your uh, Bitcoin spot trading has to be regulated by the CFTC and uh, SBF is going to be heavily lobbying the CFTC to do his bidding on everything and um, you know, favor FTX over everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be unfortunate. He also, though, wants hackers to give back um, their hackings in a tweet that he had recently. Yeah, so... So he doesn't have you know, very good ideas this, in general. <laughs> yeah, I mean, adjacent to this regulating the spot market, he has a a zoo <laughs> or a Frankenstein's monster of bizarre policy ideas that he has concocted yeah seemingly on his own because i haven't heard anyone else uh the one that i literally i read was literally so after hackers hack a coin hackers should be required to give back what they stole right yes so So somebody goes and robs a store and then the thief after they rob the store should go back to the store and say i'm sorry i'm gonna do chuva now i guess yeah. <laughs> um, do you want to explain what this is, or should we keep going? I because, think maybe we we'll just keep going. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, it's now. I think what he meant was that. Um, so, in, in in his world, in his ideology, he's like, um, blockchains are controlled by their communities, right? And there should be a community standard. That if somebody steals, let's say, Bitcoin, there has to be a hard fork that returns the Bitcoin to the rightful owner. I see. And it's like, well, what a great idea. (laughs) We should, (laughs) you know, we should actually punish criminals and help victims. Fantastic. Thank you, Sam Bankman-Fried, for coming up with a wonderful idea. Okay, so why don't we do that, right? Why is it that we're on year 14 and Bitcoin has never hard forked to return Bitcoins to um, the the rightful owners? Is it, A, because the Bitcoin community is 
utterly amoral <laughs> and and says, you know, hey, look, uh, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Eh, they're not your Bitcoin anymore. We do say stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, or B, is it because it's impossible to do? Yeah. Um, Unless you are centralized. Well, yeah, but Bitcoin's not centralized. Mm-hmm. And so in order for this to hard fork to happen, you have to get all the node operators mm-hmm. to change their software to the same new hard fork version yep. of the software. Yeah, which is very difficult to do. Very difficult to do. Well, I think, though, in like Sam's mind, everything is like an altcoin that is centralized, so it should be right. relatively easy. Right. In Sam's mind, it's like, well, now look, you've got the developers, right? For example, Solana Labs, just mm-hmm. taking a random example, okay. not related to SPF in any way. <laughs> and they, they're going to release the new version of the software and uh, everyone has to upgrade. It's a mandatory upgrade. Um, and so the idea that uh, the software developers are not forcing the upgrade onto the users, that is just unheard of to, to Sam's mind. Like, mm-hmm. that's just, yeah. It's impossible. Um, you, you know, his, his, his ideology is that the developers, and by extension him, uh, should be in charge. And also that... Um, the, the this is the best way to get adoption, right? He's thinking about it very pragmatically of like, hey, look, if we want adoption, we can't just have people stealing, uh, you know, Bitcoin left and right. Like we, we've got to, um, if Bitcoin's going to go mainstream, you should be able to get your Bitcoin back after it gets stolen. Yeah. Um, now, I think that the the deeper problem, if we go even beyond the decentralization is that it's not socially scalable. That is that, okay, now, how do the developers decide whose Bitcoin got stolen or not? Yeah, that's fair. I okay. was actually thinking of that. It's like, okay, well, like, grandma down the block accidentally decided to go to a Bitcoin ATM because she thought that's how she had to pay back her, you know, random bill that she thought she owed. And instead, she sent Bitcoin somewhere. So now are we all going to hard fork because she, you know... How would they even know about her? Yeah, and it's like I um, I buy a car, I send the person Bitcoin, and turns out the car's a lemon, mm-hmm. and he's not sending me back the Bitcoin. So I open a pull request on Bitcoin Core, yeah. <laughs> and I say, this guy stole my Bitcoin. And he says, no, I, I, I sold him a car. And I said it was as is. I didn't make any guarantees. And he didn't even open the engine hood. He didn't look inside. And, uh, you know, it's buyer beware. And I didn't steal the Bitcoin. And the Bitcoin core developer is evaluating. Yeah, is now the judge. That's right. Yeah. Is the judge, jury, and executioner, right? And has to take on all this legal liability. Yeah. Because now... This doesn't sound like it could get corrupt at all. Now (laughs) then... The, the 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 person who sold the car, well, they go to the, the, the actual legal system and they say, this Bitcoin core developer stole my Bitcoin in this pull request. Look, he yeah. he did it. Okay. Yeah. Like, also, are we going to have a bunch of lawyers and judges evaluating pull requests? Yeah. Can it, grandma down the for, block who had her Bitcoin scammed even submit one? International jurisdictions, multiple yeah. languages, multiple legal systems, yeah, multiple it's... different definitions of what theft is. And so now you have basically a Tower of Babel, right? <laughs> of everyone's trying to figure out whose Bitcoins are whose. 
using... Also, how many times a day would you be hard forking? Every 10 minutes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that this kind of weaves in nicely to what we wanted to talk about today, which is decentralization. Yes, exactly. Yes. So, So, I mean, it it very clearly states why Bitcoin is decentralized when we're talking about it from in this regard relative to maybe some of these other coins. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, for example, uh, when Ethereum um, had what's called the DAO. Right. Yeah. um, What, you know, the this was very early in Ethereum's history. And somebody created DAO, which is basically like a um, a partnership agreement where everyone contributes capital. Okay. And uh, then they vote on chain, on chain, quote unquote, on how to spend uh, that capital. Now, if I recall correctly, the DAO was for a project called Slocket, and the idea was that they would. <laughs> I'm sorry. Me, bear with me. <laughs> I can't. It gets worse. Okay. I'm listening. They manufacture hardware that allows you to use cryptography to unlock it. So it's basically saying, hey, let's put locks, actual physical locks, right? Like your your master lock on your gym locker. Okay. On the blockchain. Great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that people can, can try to unlock them <laughs> so that instead of walking around with a metal key and unlocking your lock you walk around with your hardware wallet or your software wallet on your phone and you use the ethereum blockchain to, i see yes. to unlock <laughs> the door to your house the door to your house <laughs> okay and you better hope. Presumably, will work better than my current lock. <laughs> yeah, and presumably would would work better than not using the Ethereum blockchain <laughs> and just directly unlocking it yeah. using a private key on your device. Okay, so it sounds like a great business idea. Yeah, <laughs> horrible business idea, but only made worse by saying, not only are we going to pursue. Now, hardware is really hard, actually. It's it's harder mm-hmm. to do a hardware startup than a software startup, and there's lots of risks involved in this kind of... I only uh, know that based on what you've done in our garage, so... Uh, uh, it worked? <laughs> yeah, it did for work. For a little yeah. while? It did work for a little while. it lit on fire. Yeah. Um, but anyway. <laughs> We're having way too much fun. Yeah. Yeah. It was a sprinkler system using a raspberry <laughs> We also pie. flooded our neighbor's yard once or twice. <laughs> It watered our neighbor's yard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got lots of extra water. Yes. Yeah. And then they complained. Yeah. Um, they had a drop off champagne. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, the uh, so the the DAO um, was so exciting. It attracted lots of capital. Yes, of course. It was like a sizable percentage of the Ethereum in existence went into this. I remember. Yeah, I remember it being a very big deal. Yeah, because it was like, we're going to have locks on the blockchain. <laughs> How exciting. Yeah. Um, and also, it was kind of the first big example, and, and there were influencers that were involved. And all mm-hmm. this. Yeah, of like, oh, we're not just money. We can do all sorts of things. Yeah, mm-hmm. look how much better we are than Bitcoin. Yeah. It's and, not just cats. We also have locks. And then this smart contract, quote unquote, 
had a bug in it and it allowed a hacker, quote unquote, to take all the Ethereum out of the DAO into themselves. Mm hmm. So, so I thought this was going to be the end of Ethereum. Like, I was just like, that's it. But I was very wrong, obviously. <laughs> I, I don't remember having an opinion on this. Yeah. <laughs> um, other than uh, the, the code is law, right? Mm -hmm. the, uh, hey, look, uh, this bug in the contract, it's not a bug. It's part of the contract. And um, the fact that you didn't know that means that you didn't correctly read the contract. That's true. Uh, and this happens where somebody will sign a contract and it has terms in it that they didn't read that or they understand. find problematic after yeah. the fact when but yeah. they're still presumptively legal, le legally bound to those terms. Mm -hmm. uh, not so in Ethereum world. Yes. And so they decided to uh, do what, what Vitalik calls an irregular state transition oh. of stealing the ETH from the quote-unquote hacker, i.e. the person who read the contract and followed the rules. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, giving the ETH back to everyone. And doing but they had to fork. do a hard fork, right. yeah. So they had then Ethereum Classic and Ethereum, where, and where Ethereum Classic was the original Ethereum. Correct. Does it still exist, Ethereum Classic? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it Is it exists. still proof of work, too? Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Okay, sorry. Anyways, yeah. um, continue with your thought. Yeah. So uh, the 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 reason I believe now. Hold on, I'm going out on a limb here, but uh, if any of our listeners know better, the reason they were able to do this is because of the difficulty bomb. The difficulty bomb being what allows them to force upgrades onto uh, users, so people okay. have to upgrade their node software. Now, the reason I have doubts as to my theory of it being because of the difficulty bomb is because I think that they they did the forced upgrade very quickly uh, in order to, uh, you know, very quickly reverse uh, this uh, transaction. Got it. Um, and so uh, perhaps it was some other centralization vector, uh, you know, just proof of Vitalik. <laughs> um, <laughs> Feel free to send us angry uh, notes on Twitter about yeah. what we got wrong. Now, what the Ethereum people say is, hey, look, that was the early days. And as you know, the, now they don't do that anymore. Oh, okay. As proof of that. I believe that not at all. Well, <laughs> so you could point to the fact that, um, and this is, this is Ethereum archaeology. So again, if anyone knows better, I'm, I'm open, all ears. There was a multi-sig contract created by Parity that had a bug in it. Okay. And it caused ETH to get permanently locked up. Mm -hmm. And Parity tried to say, hey, can we do an irregular state transition and unlock these ETH? And I believe the answer was no. Ah, the okay. ETH are still locked up. Now, if anyone knows better, let me know. Uh, yeah, we're all ears. Yeah, all ears here. But basically the idea is that, um, you know, Ethereum's immutability now is good because Parity said that they would not, or that because now Parity's locked out of their Bitcoin. Okay, but they just recently went from proof of work to proof of stake. Right. So this is a counterexample of saying, okay, while you have not adopted Sam Bankman Fried's, Friedman's model of governance where 
you do, uh, you know, irregular state transitions as a community, um, what, what is standard? Community yeah, community standard. standard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> proof of Sam, uh, community <laughs> standard. Um, they still are able to force uh, upgrades onto users by using, or they did uh, force an upgrade on users by using the uh, difficulty bomb. Um, how they will do that going forward, I don't know, because now there's no notion of difficulty because now they're on proof of stake. Right. Um, so I imagine that it will be like, hey, look, the top three stakers have Yeah, are going to make that. And so everyone else has to go along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is now you're just doing... It's not so much proof of stake as um, proof of top three stakers. Yeah. Well, is that going to be also that exchanges maybe have a lot more influence because exchanges stake quite a bit? So actually, interestingly, the highest influence um, staker is not an exchange. It's called Lido. Oh, okay. And, you know, I, I thought I, back before Ethereum uh, transitioned to proof of stake, I thought what you thought is that it's going to centralize to exchanges, to, to custodians. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually what, what Lido's innovation was, was that you can have your e- cake and eat it too. Got it. Of You can stake your ETH and then we'll give you a token called staked ETH. No, oh, no. And then you can use that token to go do DeFi yield farming. And so you earn yield on your ETH from staking, and then you earn even more yield. It's basically like CDO squared, you know, financial engineering. I mean, this sounds moronic. I'm sorry. We securitized your yield, and now you can go leverage that. (laughs) And, you know, you've got tranches, and it's all just, it's just recreating the fiat system. Now, the problem with this is that liquidity is a network good, meaning that um, the uh, liquidity begets liquidity. Mm. So if you are trading an asset, you're going to go to the trading venue that has the most liquidity to trade. That way you'll get the least slippage and the lowest cost of execution. And that actually increases the liquidity of that venue. And so it snowballs. Same thing here with Lido. So because every, and they call this liquid staking, where you you get a a staked ETH in return for staking your ETH, and then you can use that staked ETH for DeFi and trading and whatnot. So um, because every liquid staking provider issues a different staking token, then um, whoever kind of built up the biggest network effects first has the benefit of this liquidity network. And that's Lido in this case. Yeah. And so now... If you want to uh, participate in this system, it makes most sense to go to Lido because if you go to another one, their stake token is going to have less liquidity than Lido's stake token. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Okay. And so uh, that has caused Lido to become, I believe, the number one staking thing in Ethereum. So basically, whatever they want to do at this point is what's going to happen with the network. Uh, Yes, and, and that's not the only... Uh, power player now it's also the stable coins got it because if you have a hard fork the stable coin can only exist on one side of the hard fork or the other oh because oh, it's oh. backed by dollars in a bank account so yeah you, you don't just magically double the number of dollars in the bank account and have the stable coin on two mm, different, two different out, yeah so that makes sense now it's argued that the stable coins are the king makers 
And so if USDT tethers or USDC with Circle and Jeremy Allaire, uh, they get to decide which side of the fork is the c- correct side. Wow. Okay. Well, that's a turn of events, huh? An unexpected yeah. turn of events. Yeah. Uh, lots of lots of interesting lessons there. And even the decentralized stable coins like uh, DAI is what it's called. Um, I, th- I believe it's like, if you look under the hood, it's like 70% backed by a centralized stable coin. Yeah. So it's basically like, Okay, you have a decentralized wrapper around a centralized stablecoin, so really it's kind of by the transitive property also. Yeah, so I guess let's take our listeners into what actually makes something decentralized versus these coins and things that we've been talking about, which are not obviously decentralized. It it, it all comes down to, are, are you able to independently verify it fully? Yeah. So... Let's use the example. Let's let's start with the clearest example of the Federal Reserve. Okay. <laughs> so um, this is the clearest example. <laughs> right, no, 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 no. I like. Yeah, we could do. It. Why don't we? Let's do. Let's do the Federal Reserve. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So to independently verify the Federal Reserve's ledger. You have to go find Jeremy Powell's spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. You log on to his computer. Mm-hmm. You go into Excel and you open up. It's a 10 megabyte spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. It's on tab A-A-A-A-A-A. Yeah. <laughs> and it has everyone's account. <laughs> and you just sum all of the rows and that tells you all the dollars. Okay. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but seriously... Um, they struggle, right? I mean, as with any business trying to keep its books, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the you know it's it's accounting and it's done by humans and it's computer assisted at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably written in COBOL, which is an ancient programming language that most um, mainframe uh, data processing uh, old school things are built in, mm-hmm. and um, it is audited by a third-party auditor. Um, but if you try to independently audit it, you would get arrested for trespassing. Yes, definitely. <laughs> uh, or you'd get arrested for uh, hacking into their computers. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd have to get permission from the Federal Reserve. And even if you did get permission, it would be um, impossible for you to uh, independently verify the entire ledger. Yep. What third-party auditors like Ernst Young or Deloitte or I don't know whoever their auditor is. It's probably one of the big four, I hope. I hope. <laughs> uh, they take samples. Okay. So let's take, for example, if they were looking at the Federal Reserve's liabilities, that is money that they owe to third parties, mm-hmm. what they would do is that they would take a sample and you know they 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 use probability they use they've got some rules of thumb and it's not great either but let's just say uh, there's a, a a million transactions so they're going to sample a thousand of these transactions and then they're going to s- send a letter an actual letter the auditor is to the counterparties okay and they're going to, it's called a confirmation letter and the letter says hey we're doing an audit of the Federal Reserve. <laughs> Can you please confirm that in your books, you have this asset, which is 
receivable, right, that mm. the Federal Reserve owes you. And uh, let us know within 30 days because we've got to f- wrap up this audit. Yeah. <laughs> and then the counterparty receives this letter. They go look up in their computer system. And they say, yeah, we do have that. And so then they reply. Hopefully. Most of the time, obviously, they don't reply because what's their incentive to reply? They're busy. Yeah. Uh, and so you hope that you get, you know, enough letters back that you can say, okay, there's probably not fraud here. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, and so, so there's, I guess there's no cryptographic verification yeah. of anything here. Uh, it's all just based on heuristics, trust, and, uh, you know, just good old auditing by humans. And there's a whole lot of trust that goes on. And I mean, in the, for the American public, for sure. And globally, really, right? Because a lot of people do use dollars on like what the Federal yeah. Reserve is doing and how they're being audited. Right. Without really any independent verification. Right. Yes. Uh, so we would call that the least decentralized. Correct. It's completely centralized. Yes. And it's it's centralized in a very scary way in the sense that it's it's fallible humans running the whole thing end to end. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they don't have... They're not even using, like, modern cryptography in order to, like... <laughs> they're they're not using pgp encryption and signatures with their counterparties so that you have like end to end uh encryption authentication verification from their point of view right yeah which is something in theory that they could do they could actually they could be in a situation where they only have to trust themselves but they, they they're not even there uh now it's just like Okay, let's hope that you don't lose billions or trillions of dollars. Um, now, uh, you could also look at $100 bills. Okay. In order to verify a $100 bill, you have to buy a machine. Or uh, a special pen. Uh, th- so, so those, those don't are work? Not as good. Okay. They're not as good as the machine. Okay. And um, then uh, the, the, the machines are actually pretty good. Um, and actually... This is really why paper money was able to take off and um, outcompete physical gold is that the cost of verifying paper money actually decreased over uh, the 19th and 20th century. Um, but anyway, it's note. actually hard to verify whether or not gold is real. I mean, you basically have to melt it down. Yeah. So we could talk about now gold. Gold, not only do you have to melt it down, um, but you also can't verify like the total above ground gold supply. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and so while it's a benefit that gold is decentralized in, in a sense, mm-hmm. in a sense, we'll get into why it's not. But whereas like the Federal Reserve is completely centralized because the Federal Reserve has a monopoly on deciding what is a dollar and what is not. Yeah. There's nobody who has a monopoly on deciding what is gold or not. Right. Other than. Hashem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so uh, the, the, the properties of gold, et cetera, like, you know, chemistry, right? You can yeah. um, verify that yourself. If you really wanted to verify a, a $100 bill, you would have to go to the Federal Reserve and say, Hey, is think? this real? Yeah. <laughs> yeah is, is it real? It went through my machine, but does it go through your machine? Because yeah. they, they're the ones who get to decide. Maybe I have a fake machine. Yeah. Hmm. Um, or... Uh, in India, for example, the Indian Central Bank decided to demonetize lots of 
um, uh, high value bills that were real, but they just decided by by serial number, hey, we're going to demonetize these because there's too much money laundering happening with these. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, even if you could could independently verify a hundred dollar bill, you can't independently verify that the Federal Reserve has not decided to invalidate or void your $100 bill. Yes. Yeah. That's true. Um, okay. So uh, with Bitcoin, mm. you can ver- independently verify the whole system from day zero, the Genesis block, January 2009. You can download the entire ledger history of Bitcoin onto your computer and it's like 400 gigabytes. And you can independently verify all of the transactions. And the reason you don't have to do the confirmation letter that the auditor has to do is that you can use cryptography. And when you download the entire ledger history, the cryptographic proofs are contained within the ledger history. Meaning the digital signatures that allow someone to unlock their Bitcoin, you download those and you verify those signatures with one caveat. You have to go in the configuration of your node, turn assume valid off uh, because assume valid, as its name implies, assumes that the digital signatures before a certain height were valid. Minor, tiny trust assumption there. Mm. If, if you don't want to take that trust assumption, you can actually verify that the assume valid is correct by turning it off and then checking to see the block height. Anyway, but all of this to just save your computer a little bit of computational power. Um, now, uh, there's lots of lots of little details here, but the point being that not only do you have not only do you not have to send those confirmation letters you also don't have to trust the developers of the bitcoin software because it's open source you could independently verify the source code that is independently verifying the ledger data mm-hmm. or you could rewrite the source code yourself and many software engineers have done this so you, there's versions of bitcoin that are written in Go and JavaScript and Python, etc., and then you can um, run it yourself and see that it matches up to the same results as the um, uh, Bitcoin node in C that Satoshi started. Um, so the reason that you can independently verify everything about Bitcoin is that there are no trust assumptions. There are no uh, third party trusted third parties or you know, you might call it an Oracle, um, that, that you have to rely on, uh, for, for any part of it. Um, Vitalik has argued that you have to trust the consensus parameters. That is the configuration of the node. Uh, I think that's, that's, that's false in the sense that it's open source. So you can see the configuration parameters yourself. And also, you can verify the configuration parameters as being ones that optimize for minimal uncertainty by doing the counterfactual of, all right, what would be the consequences of me changing this configuration parameter? 
you can do that. You can run that experiment and you can see here are the negative consequences of what would happen if, for example, you increase the block size limit to one gigabyte. Mm -hmm. Okay, now it becomes this expensive to run a Bitcoin node. And so then it becomes centralized and now you can manipulate the monetary policy. Yeah. Um, and so you can run all the counterfactuals and you can verify that Bitcoin's consensus parameters are actually of all the best possible, of all the possible consensus parameters, these are the best ones, or at least uh, they're not worse. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, you might you might find some consensus parameters that are equally good or um, that are slightly better, but they're not better such that it would make sense to do a hard fork and change Bitcoin to it. So you have this kind of threshold of like, it has to be at least this much better for people to go through the trouble of doing a soft fork or a hard fork. Um, and so that's uh, my, my, my spiel on, on the decentralization is that if, if, if you don't have to trust anyone, then it's decentralized. The moment that you have to trust somebody else, mm -hmm. uh, then it's centralized. So can we put this side by side with Ethereum to take the point home? I mean, I wouldn't call Ethereum the Federal Reserve, right? I mean, it's it's less centralized, let's say, than the Federal Reserve, but it's certainly not decentralized the way Bitcoin is. Okay, so uh, in Ethereum, uh, when they wanted to change the proof of stake, you had to, and this is still the case today, if you want to stake Ethereum, you have to send ETH to an official contract. Okay, so either what you're saying is you're either decentralized or you're not. Right. There's no gradations of... None at all. Yeah. No. <laughs> now, on, okay. on particular properties, you might say, hey, look, this particular property is trust minimized. Yeah. So, for example, with Ethereum, you could say um, their cryptographic signature scheme is open and it's trust minimized. You don't have to trust anyone, right? Now, that wouldn't be the case if every Ethereum transaction had to be co-signed by Vitalik. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. it's, it doesn't have to. Be. So, like, you can have properties of the system that are decentralized, right? Just like with, with uh, the dollar, the fact that you can use a, a accounting machine to independently verify a $100 bill. Yeah, doesn't like, make the, it decentralized. No, it just makes one of the... One aspect of it. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally hear what you're saying. I think that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, uh, it's binary. It's binary. You're either centralized or you're not. Well, yeah, because there's there's it, there's going to be something that it all hinges on. Mm -hmm. And in Bitcoin, I haven't heard of anyone say, "Here's what it all hinges on," other than um, literally like the like the laws of physics, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, of of time and energy. Yeah, uh, I haven't heard it now. There are people who say, like, uh, Intel, mm -hmm. right? You've got all these nodes running on Intel processors or on AMD processors, and they're all backdoored by the NSA, and so it all hinges on the NSA. Um, I don't find that to be credible. Uh, there, there, there are people who have compiled Bitcoin node binaries for lots of different architectures and who, you know, have been able to sync the Bitcoin blockchain fine. So... I don't buy that. Um, I yeah. So I haven't heard of anyone credibly say it all hinges on this, mm -hmm. right? They'll they'll say, oh, what about the mining pools? 
well, the mining pools have had lots of turnover in terms of which mining pool is biggest, and they don't have any power because the hash rate can just be redirected. Furthermore, even if they did something malicious, uh, they they can't control Bitcoin. Yeah. And same thing with the miners, right? Like I we kinda, saw this happen in 2017. I liked your point that you made at Surfing Bitcoin about even if like for whatever reason there was only one miner on one laptop in one place that it wouldn't affect Bitcoin in any way. Correct. It still wouldn't be centralized because, and this is really an important concept uh, of, of trust minimization. It is permissionless to mine Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have to trust that anyone is mining Bitcoin because you yourself could mine Bitcoin. Yeah. And so if that one person on their one laptop mining Bitcoin decided to censor a Bitcoin transaction and to abuse this uh, position they have in the system, because it's permissionless to start mining Bitcoin, then uh, they would not be able to stop you from mining Bitcoin and from adding your transaction to the ledger. Um, so it really gets into like anti-fragility, um, of, okay, even if there was one person running a Bitcoin node and you didn't trust them, could you run a Bitcoin node? Yeah. Right. That's the question. And so, um, there's nothing in Bitcoin where it's like, even if I don't trust this person, I can't do what they're doing. And therefore, I am forced to trust them and it's centralized. Yeah, yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. I think that's a great explanation. In Ethereum, there are so many examples. Yeah. It's absurd of things where I could point to, this is something I could not do. So for, and and, and you can go forwards or backwards on this. You can go backwards of starting with okay what's the most recent example the staking contract mm-hmm. today it's, it's the official ethereum foundation staking contract if i don't trust them i cannot deploy my own staking contract and start staking yeah it's impossible okay so that's working backwards working forwards with the um auction that they had of essentially their ipo or the mm-hmm. ico um their pre-mine but the, 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 the selling of the pre-mine, if you did not trust them to do that, you could not do it yourself yeah. and still have ETH. Yeah, yes, yeah. Right? They are the official issuer of ETH. Nobody else. They had a monopoly on the issuance of ETH. Otherwise, they would not have been able to do what they did. Uh, right, you would have either had hyperinflation, mm-hmm. or they would have had to do proof of work from day zero, from uh, and from supply zero. Yeah, right. The, you can't have a proof. You cannot have a decentralized pre mine. Yeah, it's impossible. It's impossible. Um, so whether you're working forwards or backwards, there is a something that causes Ethereum to be completely centralized. They are consistent in their centralization along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And it's impossible. I would argue it's impossible to go from being centralized to being decentralized. And people say, well, look, Satoshi on day zero, he was the only Bitcoin node. He was the only Bitcoin miner. And um, I I believe he had he had released a binary, but not released the source code. Yeah. Uh, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he I need to fact check myself on this if he released the source code on day zero. And I would argue that Bitcoin was still decentralized at that point 
because anyone could reverse engineer the binary, run the binary themselves, become a node, mine. Mm -hmm. Nothing. You did not have to get Satoshi's permission to do any of those things on day zero. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very different picture. Yeah. I mean, this is great. Do you have anything else you wanted to add? Um, oh, you could have written your own Bitcoin implementation on day zero. Yeah. Which is definitely not like any other coin out there. No, because if you had written your own Ethereum implementation on day zero that did not have the pre-mine in it, it wouldn't be Ethereum. It would be on a different chain. Mm -hmm. Well, there you have it, folks. There you have it. Bitcoin's the only one that's decentralized. There is no alternative. <laughs> um, if you like the show, leave us a review. Um, if you want a specific topic, reach out to me. I'm at Morgan with an E Rochard. Pierre is at... Bitcoin Pierre. At Bitcoin Pierre. Sorry. I keep forgetting that you locked yourself out of your other one. Oh, poor Pierre underscore yeah, Rochard. Um, the one other thing I wanted to add, uh, we both have impersonators. We will never DM you asking for coins. We will never try to scam you in any way. We will never ask you for money. So please do not respond to any of those. We love our listeners and we would never want you to be scammed. Yes. And uh, we hope to see you all in a month. Yes. All right. Bye. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you for listening.